0: The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Deep Space Nine episode, Hippocratic Oath. I'm Don Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Don? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, follow The Secrets of Star Trek in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at our YouTube channel, where you should also hit the bell to get notifications. And I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network that I'm sure you're going to enjoy called The Secrets of Technology, where we discuss all the technology news and cool, interesting technology tricks, uh, tips, hacks, and stuff from a distinctly Catholic perspective. You can find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash technology.
1: So you're yes. like telling people how to hit the inner key in a Catholic way.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. There is a specifically catholic approved way to type on your keyboard
1: and
2: how to turn it off and turn it back on again
0: tune in for that uh, on our podcast (laughs) (laughs) so we're talking about uh, hippocratic oath this is a fourth season episode we're jumping back and forth as you know from first season to fourth season of ds9 and uh, this is the third episode of that season jimmy can you give us a recap of this story
1: Miles and Julian are in the Gamma Quadrant and are on their way back to the station when they're shot down by a group of Jim Hadar who are holed up on a planet. It turns out that the Jim Hadar first is miraculously free of the race's addiction to Elmer's glue, and he's brought his men here to cure them too so they can stop being slaves. But the attempt to cure them isn't working, and he forces Dr. Bashir to try to find a cure for Elmer's glue addiction. Bashir agrees, but Miles is adamantly opposed and wants to escape and leave the jemhadar to die. Bashir pulls rank on him, uh, having seen that the first is growing a sense of morality without the glue. While doing an errand for Bashir, Miles escapes the jemhadar who is guarding him. Convinced it's the only way to save Julian's life, he returns to camp and blows up Julian's equipment, so there's no way he could find a cure now. The first lets the two of them escape in the runabout, but stays behind, hoping to kill his men so that they won't have to die slow, agonizing deaths. Meanwhile, back at the barn, Worf is being overly zealous about rooting out crime on the station. He ends up interfering with and partially ruining a sting operation Odo and Quark are conducting together on a smuggling ring. In the end, Bashir decides not to reveal what Chief O'Brien did and not have him brought up on charges. And Odo decides not to report Worf's actions, though Sisko learns of them anyway and tells Worf he'll fit in on the station just fine as soon as he learns it's not run like a starship. The end.
0: So uh, just one little interesting point. The first, Goranagar, was played by Scott McDonald, who was also Tosk in the first season episode, Mm. Captain Mm. Pursuit. So if you recognize him, he...
1: (laughs) You look a lot alike. The, the, the makeup between the two looks so a lot. on on the set when they were like, "Don't I know you?" I am Tosk.
0: <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> well, I am Groot. So there. Uh, <laughs> so the title of the episode is Hippocratic Oath, uh, and just for those who may not be familiar, that's an oath that doctors take. It's an ancient oath, right? But it's not a you
1: kind of sort of take. Not s- always really. It's kind of okay, a tradition, though.
0: Right. Yeah. So what? What is? What is the Hippocratic Oath, and like, how does it bear on this episode? Do you think?
1: Oh well, okay. Um, So, the Hippocratic the fun and now the Hippocratic Oath has a number of different clauses, including not providing help for abortion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But its general thrust is medicine needs to be practiced for the benefit of the patient, and like one of the maxims that's associated with Hippocratic Oath is first do no harm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's meant to give a set of ethical guidelines to physicians where in the original version they're swearing they're swearing all this to to either Apollo or Asclepius I forget which but it gives them guidelines for practicing medicine in a way that will actually help the patient. And so it's kind of loose but that's essentially what we have going on here. Julian's medical ethics are overriding or what one interpretation of mm-hmm. what they should do, which for Miles is like we're prisoners. Our duty is to escape. Let's get out of here. We're right. not here to help these people. And Julian's medical ethics are pushing him in the other direction. And so, even though the Hippocratic Oath is never actually invoked in this episode, it medical ethics are at the center of it. Okay.
0: okay. Yeah, and and his his reasoning is also has all you know. Uh, military uh, uh, reason behind it as well, which is if we can free the Hadar from their addiction to the White, they can we can
1: undermine the Dominion's military power. And Miles has the perfect comeback to that. Or they could start marauding through the galaxy on their yeah. own and the <laughs> Dominion's keeping them on a tether. Right,
0: right. So that's an interesting point. Well, and that the the other aspect of the important aspect of this plot in the, in the story is the This relationship between O'Brien and Bashir they are friends uh, yes. within, within this
1: hierarchy I, and i I have in my notes the at because at the beginning of the episode they're having a conversation, and mm-hmm. it's very clear that they' become friends at this point, and yes. they weren't always and it's nice to see them just relating as friends
0: yes and and that is tested when it comes to the to because at heart Starfleet despite all of its protestations to otherwise is a military hierarchical organization with yeah. people of higher rank and people of lower rank and and O'Brien is lower ranking than Bashir and Bashir pulls pulls rank
2: and that's been the one that's the one difference with DS9 uh is that it actually did introduce the the enlisted ranks of which Chief O'Brien is an enlisted NCO right. non-commissioned officer so he even though he's got many more years in Starfleet than Uh, Bashir does he is of a lower rank and you know and and Bashir can pull rank on him
1: and and for once they don't start with the rank insubordination that happens when they're when they've crashed on the planet and they've gotten out of the runabout and the Jemadar have captured them the the Jemadar are asking them for an explanation of what they're doing here and on Any previous Star Trek show, O'Brien probably would have just blurted out something Mm -hmm. because they're not rank conscious enough on the other shows. But on this one, (laughs) O'Brien keeps his mouth shut and lets Julian take the lead because it's Julian's place to tell the Jem'Hadar whatever they're going to be told or not told. And Miles is going to need to follow his lead. Exactly, right. and so Miles, as the as the junior officer, should not be spouting his mouth off about
2: here's mm-hmm. why we're here and deciding what they get told. Well, and they're they're explicit about it too, where the the, the Jim Hadar comes up to him and, oh, you're you know non commissioned officer, you know chief petty officer, oh lieutenant, you know explicitly yeah. stating their rank of you're an officer, you're not, you're the more important one, you're the one we can kill. Right.
0: They hang a lantern on this this disparity in rank and in authority, uh, because it's going to be a key aspect of the story. Um, yeah.
1: S- speaking of hanging a lantern on something, I just wanted to comment on the Worf plot line. Okay, and so this is very af- this is very quickly this is like the third episode that Worf has been on the show, mm-hmm. yes. and so the question of how is he going to fit in is a logical question to ask, and this is a sort of transition episode for him from going from starship mode to space station mode and it makes sense in those terms to show him having an adjustment reaction to his new environment Mm -hmm. but unfortunately they've written this episode in a way that involves plot collapse disorder because (laughs) if if odo had once odo realized that wharf was sniffing around the edges of this case where he's conducting a sting operation on a smuggling ring, he should have just told Wharf what's going on. Yeah. And and that would have prevented, but that would have collapsed the subplot. Right. Because right. then Wharf would have known what was going on and he wouldn't be interfering and wrecking this episode, creating the drama in the subplot. Mm-hmm. And so this is another one of those instances, like the yellow face from Sherlock Holmes or the Sussex vampire. From Sherlock Holmes or several other stories where someone irrationally withholds information that would reasonably be shared in order to keep the plot going, because otherwise you have plot collapse disorder. Right. And this is another example of that. And I always hate it when I see that. But they do at the end try to hang a lantern on it where Mm -hmm. Worf says, well, why didn't you tell me and Odo gives him a bunch of phony baloney reasons that are nonsense.
0: Yeah, I was right. going to say, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. He, should have, you should, he would have just told him, hey, back off. I'm doing an investigation. Yeah. I don't answer to you. And uh, it's, I'm taking care of it.
2: Well, and they could also handle that with uh, Cisco, where he Cisco or uh, Worf is talking to Cisco about how incompetent Odo is and all this stuff. And Cisco's like, well, just remember, you're now our operations officer and you know, keep your mind on that. Right. It doesn't he's, just flat he's, out. It does. But so but he doesn't it. flat out say you are not a security officer. You do not pretend to be a security officer on this station. You do not interfere with a security officer. Knock it off. Right. It's not your job anymore.
0: And, and yeah. actually, I have to say that scene where Cisco corrects Worf, Worf takes his correction without backtalk, without complaining. This is mm-hmm. unlike, uh, let's just say, more recent Star Trek series where people to get corrected and they have they have this need to backtalk because they're smarter than the their superior officer
1: well and it's also unlike Worf be- previously mm-hmm. because he did backtalk on the enterprise and got called yep. on the carpet about it re- yes. rather severely
0: right with uh when, he, data. when data was captain for uh, uh, temporarily yes uh, and he took that uh from data that correction from data the same way though i mean which mm-hmm. where he took
1: it and he said you're right i'm wrong and move on it was You know, I got to respect war for that. By the way, speaking of ridiculous things, and now I like this episode overall, Mm -hmm. but speaking of ridiculous things in it, there is a moment where a Jim Hadar has like been strangling Miles Uh and Brashear and the first break it up. And and by visual inspection only, no tricorder whipped out. Yeah. Brashear informs Miles he has a bruised trachea, but there's no permanent damage. (laughs) <laughs> you can tell wow they really did give you some genetic upgrades that yeah, haven't exactly. been revealed yet if you can tell just by looking at him that he <laughs> seconds seconds after the attack that he has a bruised trachea but there's no permanent damage yes you,
2: you didn't know about the borg implants he also got that let him see through <laughs> yeah. you know see x-rays
1: He's he's got tricorder eyes yeah. uh, so uh <laughs> Yeah. So, oh, oh, so yep. one, yeah. One, one more um sure ridiculous thing. So they're they're flying along in the Gamma Quadrant talking about Keiko and heading back to the station and they detect, Miles says, a magneton pulse. And mm-hmm. and, and and so I'm going, Really? They're detecting a magneton pulse. So a magneton is a unit of magnetic moment in physics. So the thing to bear in mind is it's a unit of measurement. Okay. <laughs> this is this is like saying we're picking up a kilogram pulse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I don't think you know how those words work. Yeah. yeah. And they just, and, yeah. and they dig themselves in a little bit deeper, maybe depending on your perspective, because Julian then says, what's a magneton pulse? And Miles incorrectly says it is polarized. A magneton is polarized magnetic energy. Uh, well, it <laughs> it's a measure. It's a unit of me, of measure of magnetic moment.
0: Right, right.
1: <laughs> but it's a sign of a damaged warp drive. So, yeah, yes. apparently, so <laughs> apparently. yeah. Those kilogram pulses will give will tell give give away your damaged warp drive like nothing. <laughs> exactly.
0: Uh, I did like O'Brien complaining. So Keiko, if, if for those who don't remember, is not living on the station with O'Brien. She's living on Bash- on uh, B- Major doing her botany thing. But uh, comes and- home
1: on weekends or something.
0: Yep. Right, and while she's away, he's living like a bachelor. Is it, that's her complaint? Is because uh, he moved his workshop into the bedroom, um, and uh, he says, uh, "Look, you know why can't she see?" Bashir sympathizes and says. It's a sign of your desire for more intimacy by putting your, you know, workshop in the bedroom where you, the, it's a sign of where you are most intimate together. And uh, it's, it's, she says, and, and he says, you're right. O'Brien says, why can't she see that? Why can't she be more like a man? Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love Bashir's response is, is like, you want her to be a man. Yes. And O'Brien <laughs> just looks at him and says, shut up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That was, that was good. Um. So, uh, be, starfleet, being the good Samaritans they are, they detect the magneton pulse and they go looking for trouble. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, they, they, and out of the whole planet, they crash land near the other ship, which is you know of a course. Star Trek, a Star Trek trope is when you crash land on a planet, you're always going to be near the main plot uh, device. Um. Yeah. So, when when we get to this this dispute, right? Uh, when mm-hmm. O'Brien tells Bashir, you can't help the Hadar uh by helping whoever is hurt. That's one of that's that's the, the first inclination in is somebody's hurt and they're they're needed to help them. That's what they think is going on. And Bashir says, okay, look, I've got my Starfleet oath. I can't help the Dominion with anything that can be used against anyone else. Right. But my Hippocratic oath means I have to help someone in need. And so there's mm-hmm. that this is the essential conflict that Bashir is confronted with in this episode. Right.
2: And and you know, today, even today in the military, medics are required to treat prisoners of war. Yes. So if, you know, if if we take a, an enemy soldier and he's injured, let's say during World War II, a German soldier was injured and brought to a, a U.S. prisoner camp. There were medics there that were military medics from the U.S. military to treat their troops. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, that, that's, that's been a principle in military for a very long time. Now, the question is, could, does it have to be flipped? And I, I was trying to look it up, and I unfortunately, couldn't find anything. But I do seem to recall that there were cases where captured U.S. medics did serve, like, in concentration camps to help those in the camp. Right. You know, so like that the, they're they, the, guards, you mean, like that? E- yeah, e- even something like that, although usually, obviously, they had their own. I, like right. I said, I couldn't find anything specific. Now, I, I know for a fact there were cases where captured U.S. medics were medics to the prisoners in the camps. Right. Those those were absolutely true. But treating I, their captors, I, I, yeah. But, but between their captors, and I don't remember if that's a part of the Geneva Convention or not. So it'd be interesting to hear from others who might have more knowledge yeah. of that than, than me on it. But so and that's where that's where this scenario would fit in is mm-hmm. is it permissible for Julian as a medic in a real sense, uh in a prisoner of war camp to be working to help his captors you know and that and of course you know chief o'brien's like no that's that's not acceptable we have to try to escape which by the way is a part of the u.s military code as a prisoner is that's part of it is you have to try to escape you have to try to if if an opportunity comes you and your fellow prisoners have to be have to escape that's one thing they talk about when they they do pow training in the military but again you know how does this work as far as Julian's
0: right yeah i was thinking that there's also there is an element where you can try to, you can appear to be helping while trying to escape like you can do something that aids in a non-military uh, fashion mm-hmm. your captor in order to gain yeah. their trust and, sur- and thus survive like that's allowed right. but uh, i have a nephew who's a lieutenant in the army who uh, recently went mm-hmm. through that training and so this okay it's kind of I don't I, there's a lot he can't talk about <laughs> apparently, mm-hmm. but uh, th- some of that has come up where with that they can gain the trust of their captors uh, by doing things for them that are non-military, uh, uh, like doesn't aid them in in the their military capacity, but does right. gain their trust. You know, it is an interesting point is that they're not yet at war with the Dominion Starfleet, right. not technically. They're hostile, clearly. But there's mm-hmm. not technically a state of war. So
2: rules might be a little different, maybe. Yeah. And I mean, if, if it's it is one thing, if you're helping out um, an aggressor, mm-hmm. is a better way way to put that or right. or, or, you know, um, a Cold War type, like like if, if in the, the 70s, we had helped out Russia on something.
0: Yeah. You right. know,
2: because we were not in an active state of war. There was no declared war. We were not having conflicts, but we were in a Cold War with them. And that's that's more with this kind of situation where there might be some skirmishes, but there weren't an actual declared state of war. Um, Yeah. Interesting. I was was just thinking of uh, this is a similar situation to the movie Bridge over the River Kwai. Yeah. With Alec Guinness. Yeah. Where that's where it starts out as they are British soldiers who have been captured by Japan and they're being forced to build this railroad bridge. Well, at first they're going to do it to to, uh, sabotage it. Right. But then uh, Alec Guinness's character gets all, you know, British, you know, proper British. We're going to build <laughs> this the best, you know, prisoner built railroad bridge ever. And at the end, it actually becomes a, a crisis for him. Right. Right. That's because right. Because he becomes so proud of this bridge that they've done that all, that they actually end up. if What was it? They actually end up killing British spies who are going to come in and destroy it. Try to remember.
0: Yeah, it's been a long time since I've
2: seen that. It's been, it's been a while since like I've seen it, like. it, but I I remember right yeah. there was a scene where uh, some British British uh, special service special agents or special uh, military service uh, come in to destroy the bridge and they actually fight him fight them off.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, and there's conflict within them among the prisoners about whether we should be building this bridge. So yeah, this so is kind very, of a bridge over the river Kwai sort of situation that we've got here, which right. is interesting. Right. Uh, another uh who small plot hole here uh mm-hmm. <laughs> shall we say uh so garanagar is the first the Jemadar first and he's the one who's free of the catcher white addiction and the way he fa- he found it out was he crashed on this planet was the sole survivor of this very planet that they were on before and ha- didn't have enough white and survived without it and so th- there's a couple of questions that come up which is how did he get off that planet <laughs> that right. first and did the people rescuing him, and when he obviously goes back to the Dominion, did no one notice that he had been out of cell White when they picked him up?
2: Right. And then he, he said something like he survived like three days with, uh, or he had three days reserve, and yes. then after three days he was out, and then he survived for like a month.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he stretched the three days to eight days, and then it was a month before he was picked up off the planet. So
2: he must have. He must have had another one, another ship come by and find his distress call or whatever and grab him. And, oh, yeah, I just used up my last one today. Wink, wink.
0: I suppose you know. that's possible that he yeah, that he's that he didn't tell them. Yeah. yeah. Um, We do get a little bit of the big picture story arc exposition with a, a briefing for Cisco. Uh, the Klingons, as we'll remember from the beginning of the season, had attacked Cardassia. Um, they've pulled back after failing to defeat the Cardassians and now uh, licking their wounds, they're looking for their next victory. So that's right. sort of setting up the rest of the season here. So it's there's an interesting exchange between Bashir and Guranagar about Guranagar's beliefs. Um, they they see the founders, the changelings, as gods. In fact, this I think yep. this might be the first time where it's explicitly said that they're like gods for
2: us. Um, yeah, I think you're right on that. You know that they've not seen these gods. They know they exist, but that they are very much like gods, but these aren't gods. Like we would understand God as as he expresses it of it's a divine. It's a being that's outside of us that wants us to be with them for eternity. You know, thinking of, you know, heaven, you know, spending eternity in heaven. Right. And they say, well, we're not, that's not our gods. Our gods just want us to fight and die for them.
0: Right. Right. And he says they're like, like a myth, like most, uh, most uh, Jem'Hadar have never even seen a changeling. Um, So they're a myth to us. But it's the Vorta that they serve, that, that right. they um, that they're the more immediate threat. And it's an interesting idea that while it's the, the founders who are really the should be the Jem'Hadar's object of of fear and distrust and you know anger, it's really the Vorta because the Vorta are the ones who are present in their lives. They're the ones mm-hmm. withholding the Ketrasil White and using it to keep them uh, under the yoke. And that's that's an interesting subtlety that they've built into DS9, that this whole Dominion arc. I I like that multi-layered subtlety that they put into that. Um, So Bashir, we mentioned Bashir, thinks that breaking their addiction to Catch White will free the Jemadar, make them question their beliefs. Mm -hmm. Bashir uh, sees them as people. O'Brien says they're killers. And if we release them, they're going to maraud through the universe. Uh, Bashir pulls rank. O'Brien disobeys orders. And there's this whole question, is this shades of gray or is this a black and white situation? Right. Is this complex or is it very clearly this is the right thing to do?
2: You know, it, it, I, I they set it up as a dichotomy. It's either you help them or you kill them. Yeah. And there's no in between. And, you know, and it and, you know, Chief O'Brien is is very much again being put into the He's a former soldier. He fought, you know, he he fought in multiple battles. He He's seen uh, much bloodshed, much death. And that's all he sees them as. And right. Bashir is looking at the other way of, well, we can rehabilitate him. We can we can get him away from that. And it's you know, it's kind of funny. Is it, it's another parallel with the Klingons? You know, the Klingons were very much viewed that way. Although they, little more um, nuanced at times. Yeah. But the Klingons were very much the they're the warrior race. It's you know, kill or be killed. And that's right. what they see the Jemadar as now, as you know, a warrior race, kill or be killed. That's all we're there for. That's all we exist for. And uh, yeah, so I I don't know, and I I do think the first they're trying to bring in some nuance there, Mm -hmm. where you can see he's much more—I don't know if compassionate is the right word—but he definitely has a much broader view on life, especially Jim and our life, than just our job is to suffer, you know, fight and die.
0: Right. He's not just a you know a robotic killer, you know, that uh, just kills uh, uh, upon command. But there's he thinks he's got, uh, you know, ideas and, you know, both Bashir and O'Brien make good points in their respective arguments, by the way, they're they're, Mm -hmm. there. You could go either way. You know, Bashir is, uh, you know, from a especially from a Christian point of view, they are they are people uh, within the realm. If we posit the Star Trek universe, uh, that they are people who should be not treated as a mass of whatever, but they are. You know individuals, and mm-hmm. you should help them. You should do what you can to help them. Whereas, you know, O'Brien has a good point. They're also very clearly aggressive killers, and maybe if if they aren't under control, they're they're a problem. And it's you know, and and then, and also their immediate situation, which is we're being held captive. So it is interesting to see that.
2: Yeah, uh, it's and you know, and one thing I struck is in another kind of military thing that you you learn is that if an order is an illegal order, you are not required to follow it. And that's what we see Chief O'Brien doing. He believes that what Julian Bashir is doing is illegal. It is contrary to Federation law, Starfleet regulations. And so he disobeys the order. You know, who was in the right? Um, And and of course, they don't resolve that because Julian says, I'm not going to, at the end, he says, I'm not going to turn you in. So they don't resolve whether or not either was in the right. They just let it lie. And of course, they, they kind of hang a lantern on the, well, you know, you're, you're, we're we're friends, we're usually doing our darts, but we aren't going to do it now. Yeah, right. it's just what we know, the next episode, they'll be throwing darts again.
0: Right. Yeah. At the end of this one, this clearly has been a strain in their friendship over this. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, Bashir is not going to report him. O'Brien is not going to, you know, d- dispute what Bashir did. And they're just going to kind of go take take a break. We're on a break from her yep. from hanging out. But yeah, they'll they'll. They'll be back uh, together again as as buddies,
2: um, which admittedly that's kind of refreshing. We're not getting the you know two episodes, three episodes later. Do you remember when you did this? Yeah, right, no. right. Holding a grudge. You don't really care. Stuff.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um. In the and in the end, O'Brien, it's it's interesting how O'Brien has a sort of respect, a grudging respect for Garanagar the first, mm-hmm. you know, who who takes his duty as commander like. His his men are dying. They're they're starting to suffer, and he's going to stay and put them out of their misery. Which is, you know, admittedly not something that we would, you know, uh, assisted suicide of or of, of this kind. It's not something that we mm-hmm. would, uh, approve of. But in the sense, he's he's sacrificing himself to his duty to his men in this right. case, uh, this which O'Brien same can respect. Idea, you know.
2: Yeah. Same idea: the captain goes down with his ship, type of deal. That the captain's right. the last one off. The commander is the last one to, uh, to survive. Yes,
0: and it's kind of uh, proves Bashir's point, which is that they're not the Jem'Hadar, not just un- unrepentant unredeemable killers. That they mm-hmm. are capable of more, and so that that's kind of an interesting point there. And then the at the end, I kind of like this exchange between Cisco. I mean, so Bashir and O'Brien. Bashir says, mm-hmm. um, you, know, it, it, O'Brien had said, he, I, had to, I had to do it. I had to disobey you. And Bashir says, you didn't have to, chief. You had a choice and you chose to disobey orders, override my judgment and condemn those men to death. And O'Brien says, yes, I did, because I thought it was the only way to save your life. Whatever mm-hmm. else you may think of who I am and what I did, at least try to understand that. And right. that's really interesting nuance. It's like not it's not just one is right and one is wrong. Yeah, uh, it, this yeah. is what. This is the sort of thing that made Deep Space Nine so good. Is it always? It, it it wasn't always just a clear black and white. This is the right thing that happened. This is the wrong thing that mm-hmm. happened, and, and so on and so forth. It, it it really did explore these nuances and these complexities in in, yeah. in the way things are.
2: Well, they they balanced Bashir's optimism that oh he could find the solution because he's the miracle man. You know he's the he's right. the wonder savior, and. Chief O'Brien's experience of, no, these are killers and they're going to use us until we've met their needs and then they're going to kill us because they aren't going to want to just send us on our way and let people know that all of a sudden this had happened. And and I can see it from the Adar's viewpoint, too. They're going to say, if these two Federation yahoos get off this planet, they're Mm -hmm. going to let them know that, hey, we've got a a, a cure for Ketrasol white addiction. Right. And the Varta aren't going to like that. Yes, and they're going to hunt us down. Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So it it is likely that they would have killed them to save themselves, uh, or at least possible. But I think that both Bashir and O'Brien had good arguments to support themselves. And it's not clear that one was right and one was wrong. And that's something that comes out with Cisco in Worf, because at the end of that episode, Cisco's got Worf in his office again, and he's telling him, he's trying to talk to him about fitting in and about shades of gray. That, you know, Worf. It's not just clear that quark is a criminal and therefore should be arrested. There are shades of gray when you're out here on the frontier dealing with the the complexities yeah. of what's going on. It's not like being on the
2: enterprise yeah they're they're not dealing with the you know strict regiment of a uh, um, a military i mean that's Starfleet because of course they're not they're absolutely not a military um, <laughs> exactly. right uh, you know that that things are you know the the crimes are be pretty petty compared to what you're going to find out on a frontier. Yes space station. Right. And I think, and I think that's one of the things that I've, I've liked about DS9 is it very much has kind of the old West feel without being, you know, not, not quite like Firefly, the series Firefly, of (laughs) course, but you know, but it's got kind of that old West. We're on the frontier. This isn't an established part of the Federation. This isn't, you know, civilization. This is where civilization is really being reestablished. You could say. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yes. Uh, That, that is true. That's one of the things that it, that really made DS nine good was, is that it was so different from the other star Trek that it had come before. And it was exploring, mm-hmm. if not literally in a starship, <laughs> exploring the frontier, yeah. it was exploring a different kind of frontier that, that yeah. we'd
2: seen before. And it, it did take a while to get its footing. And that's why we're in the middle of an episode or season four episode right now. <laughs> right, <laughs>
0: right, right. We'll go back to season one next time we come around to DS nine. But yeah, this is uh this is, Season four is where the, the series really got its legs under it and really took off. And I think that's uh, we can agree. This episode is a good one. I have to note that the the writer for this one, Lisa Klink, uh, was an intern on, the, hmm. on the, the script writing staff and was given this opportunity to write this episode based on that. So it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, as a first outing on a real script. And uh, Ronald D. Moore had an uncredited polish on it, so that that's uh, sure, yeah, that uh, clearly. Um, and it was pitched as two different stories. There were two different story pitches: one, the the Jemadar one, and then the uh, the Wharf one. So it was kind of interesting. Sure. Hmm. Anyway, uh,
2: so any other last thoughts on this episode? I should just mention because I don't think we did is that the reason why Gronagar, the first. Did not need the Ketrissol White is he had a mutation. It wasn't yes. something from the planet. Yeah, you know that it, it ended up being it wasn't something from the planet. It wasn't the air. It wasn't the crash. It Was anything like that? It was just the fact that he had a mutation when he was cloned that caused him to produce the Ketrissol White naturally. So there wasn't unless Bashir could have figured out what was causing this. You know what gland or whatever he had that would cause it. And of course they oh I don't see any glands that do. It's like well there's got to be one somewhere right but you know something's got to be producing it but it unless you could figure that out and create it for the other Jemadar, there would be no cure
0: one other little behind the scenes note uh, this episode was directed by rene oberjeanois so uh oh, the actor right. played yeah. odo so um so very interesting uh, direction from him on this a good a good job on this one from him yes um all right i think that should do it for us this time uh, you'll note that uh, jimmy had to to uh leave us uh, in the middle of the recording. So uh, that's why you haven't heard from him in a bit. But uh, yeah, he, he'll
2: be, he waved at us and disappeared.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he had uh, something else he had to go do. So that's fine. Uh, we'll we'll hear from him next time we talk about Star Trek. But uh, before we finish up, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Stephen E., William C., Jeremy S., Joanne M., and Christine G. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give. Make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us each week. So that's it from us. What did you think of Hippocratic Oath, this DS9 episode? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Voyager episode, Faces. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Don. Jimmy Akin, thank you wherever you are, (laughs) and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest, and remember, I wish I was on this trip with someone else. That's what I wish. Hi, everyone. This is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of StarQuest, with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Now we need your generous financial support to reach new audiences with more of the life-changing and uplifting programming We've been creating for more than a decade. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you are already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you and ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. Every gift counts. Could you give $15 or even just $10 per month? Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas. And remember that your gifts may be tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season.